We are joining 21 other churches, actually 25 other churches across Long Island in a, uh, in a campaign to explore God. And uh, just so you know, if you have gone to the Explore God LI website, you will have joined over 245,000 people who've looked at it. Isn't that interesting? We've spent some money on Facebook ads and full-page ads in uh, the local papers and all, all these churches, we're together praying for revival and praying to equip the church to speak to the hard questions that people at work and in your family and in your class at school are asking. Today is the number one question that people ask if they are given the opportunity in a survey, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? So I'd like you to look at this video now. Wes, if you would down, dim the house lights, and uh, we want to have the volume on pain and suffering. Pain, pain's a part of life. You know, it's, it leaves a sour taste in your mouth. It's, you just have to learn from it. I think some people believe it's a test of your faith, but if you don't have a faith to believe in, it kind of makes you wonder why, why is there suffering in this world? Famine and death, that sort of thing. It was a reason why he took them. Uh, maybe he needed some angels up there to protect, protect, to help him in the fight against the devil. A baby is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Why doesn't he want me to have this? I think that bad things are just the way that you see them. Thank God's in everything we do. I don't think God does these things to people. I think he has a way of getting us through it. Why would anybody want to create people who do horrible things to each other each and every day? It doesn't make any sense. suffer because sometimes they put themselves into it and others just it just happens to them when my grandma died she died of cancer like six years ago and I remember like when she was like a few days before she passed away she was like it couldn't possibly be a god no one would ever want it. no one would ever want to inflict this pain some of the best lessons I've learned in life and the best um, feelings in my heart came from very painful times I don't think God's sitting there and saying these people are hurting and maybe I should help them or we're, I'm going to pray to this you know, being and he's going to save me. I don't think that happens. Um, I think he's just there, I guess. <laughs> I'm constantly struggling, I suppose I'll be brutally honest, with uh, suicidal ideation and I find it very miserable often, despite the beauty of the world, to be made conscious in this form. Why? Why, why does the pain? Why was why were little kids shot the other day? I want to know why this happened, but he's showing me that he's here with me. So I suppose the answers will come. It's just I'm going through a journey right now that's painful. Why is there pain and suffering? How do we understand it? I could preach for the next four hours 
on this difficult and important biblical subject, I won't. But I will tell you that I've read more books than a man ought to read about pain and suffering, and there are some very helpful ones. John Morkin showed me this book that was extremely helpful to him when his first wife died, A Grace Disguised by Gerald Sitzer. Dan McCartney has written a book entitled, Why Does It Have to Hurt? The Meaning of Christian Suffering. Very, very good biblical insights. Johnny Erickson Tata, the woman who was paralyzed over 40 years ago, a quadriplegic and has now for the last 40 years been an amazing Christian counselor and evangelist to tens of thousands of people, wrote a powerful book entitled, When God Weeps. R.C. Sproul has dealt with some of the more philosophical and theological issues in his book entitled, Surprised by Suffering. And Sharon Betters, the wife of a wonderful PCA pastor in Newark, Delaware, writes of the time that her son, bright and brilliant, godly young man, was killed in a traffic accident, and she journaled and shares her journals with the world, her book entitled Treasures in Darkness. And then this recent outstanding, maybe one of his best, by Tim Keller, just published, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Outstanding, outstanding survey and pastoral work on this whole subject. And then Tim's wife, Kathy Keller, gave an address at the National Prayer Breakfast in front of President Obama and senators and congressmen. And Kathy Keller is behind an awful lot in this book that Tim wrote. And her address, I've made ten copies of it. It's entitled, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. It's a profound statement of faith in the midst of personal darkness. So, um, maybe, Rob, we should get some of these books for the book table downstairs But how do we speak to the issue of pain and suffering? We read in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, and it's in point number 3 in your sermon outline. So if you turn to the back page of your sermon outline, I want to kick it off with some of the verses we read earlier in the service. For those listening online, I want to read again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And then down in verse 8, hear Paul's testimony. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So far, the reading of God's Word. 
I once heard David Pallison, a, a great Christian counselor, tell a story. This was a, maybe 30 or 40 years ago. David told the story of two clients who came to him as a professional counselor in the same week, and both of them at different times showed up to say, I need a counselor because my doctor has just told me I have cancer and it's serious. And David went on to describe both of these counselees, not by name, of course. And one was bitter, angry, frustrated, self-absorbed, desperate and hopeless, and seething. The other person was properly distressed, appropriately upset, and yet they came and they said, I want to learn how to experience God's comfort. And they began to talk about how maybe even they could care for other people as they went through their cancer. And on the other side of it, they thought, how can I experience God's hope and comfort so that I can comfort someone else. Two different people, same problem. It's interesting, isn't it? What what makes them different? David went on to say, the second person was actually committed to experiencing God's comfort in suffering, just like our passage here talks about. And then they, they actually wanted to comfort other people in their family and their neighborhood and, 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 and reach out, just what the Bible talks about here. So my question is, for myself and for us, how do we respond to pain and suffering? We know what people in the world wrestle with by virtue of the video that we just walked, but how do we comfort other people struggling with the same question. Well, let me say in point number one what we are not going to do. We do not comfort other people by giving them a long, detailed, theological, and philosophical discussion of what the the, the eggheads call theodicy. Let me teach you a new word today, theodicy. Theodicy is that little department of philosophy that wrestles with the question of God's goodness and justice in the face of evil. And over the course of thousands of years, every culture, every civilization, every person has asked the question, if there is a God, then how can evil exist? Why would a loving and just God create such a system? And they've been busy... For thousands of years, in fact, the book of Job may be the oldest theodicy. And I commend the book of Job to you. But we're not going to give a full philosophical uh, conclusion to the issue of theodicy, nor are we going to help them and comfort them by giving them easy platitudes, simple religious phrases. When somebody is hurting, when somebody is frightened, and you say to them, all you need to do is pray. 
when somebody is struggling with fear or guilt or perhaps even the end of their own life, and you say, all you need is faith. There was a radio preacher that I used to listen to, and he ended every broadcast with, you don't have any problems. All you need is faith in God. And if I'm driving in the car, I would grab the steering wheel like this. It was horrible. Why? Because when people are suffering, they do not need quick platitudes. Don't get me wrong. It's very helpful for us to recite together what is true. When we studied the character of God together, we, com- we are committed to the goodness of God, and so we say to each other, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. But when your friend just hears from the doctor that they have cancer, do not say that. That is not the first thing that should come out of your mouth. You know it's true. But restrain your helpful self. What does Proverbs say? It says something like a person who sings a cheerful song is like pouring vinegar on baking soda, like salt on the wound. My heart really went out to the young woman in the video who said, I'm constantly struggling. And she said, I I suppose I should be brutally honest that I struggle with suicidal ideation. What is that? She's saying, I think about killing myself. And I'm upset that I have these thoughts. Does your heart go out to her? My heart goes out to her. She doesn't need me to sing her a cheerful tune right at that moment. That being said, we are called to speak what the Bible speaks. And there are occasions, not not in that immediate moment of suffering, but maybe you're at a company picnic. Maybe you're at a family reunion. Maybe you're standing by the water cooler and someone comes to you and says, you know, you're religious. I know, you're religious. And my uncle just got diagnosed with cancer. How do I understand this? How do I make sense of this? What do you say? And so my second point today is this, that there are opportunities when you have a brief moment to give them some categories from the Bible to make sense, or when you yourself get hard news or face difficult circumstances, what do you say to yourself And the first thing that you need, at least what I say to myself when I need to make sense out of suffering is this, I need to remember that we live in a fallen world. This world is broken. This is not the best of all possible worlds, as the writers of the Enlightenment say, this world is broken. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. When did that start? It started at what is called the fall. And the word fall is, is, is not just a theological term. It is describing the event in Genesis 3 
when Adam and Eve, as our federal representatives, did what we all would have done with that freedom, and when they raised themselves up in rebellion against God, and they disobeyed in that first sin against God, and they were cast out of the garden, and God put his curse on this world. Do you remember how he described it? Thorns, sweat, the pain of childbirth, and death. This is their legacy. This is the legacy we all, you must know. The Bible says, Adam, you know, you can be mad at Adam and Eve, but you should be mad at yourself too. For he is our federal head. We are all guilty in him. And so the consequences of the fall are before us. The reason for cancer, mental illness, catastrophes, is that we live in a fallen and broken world. Just an important category to have. For suburban Americans who think life is always scored in a major key, we learned life is scored in a minor key. Second thing I tell myself is that sometimes, not always, sometimes suffering is a consequence of my own sin or someone else's sin. Now this, this is dangerous, but I, I have to take this under advisement. Did you catch the quote from one of the women in the, in the video? She just said very matter-of-factly, people suffer sometimes because sometimes they put themselves into it. And other people, it just happens to them. And what was she getting at? I think that woman was just an astute observer of the world around her. And she says, sometimes you bring it on yourself. I think she's just taking what the Bible calls... A common sense. See, the book of Proverbs is full of this. Proverbs 5, 22 and 23. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Now, Jesus warns us when they attack him about the man born blind, you know, and they want to say, did he sin or his parents sin that brought this on him? And, and what did Jesus say? He said, neither of them. He says, you're barking up the wrong tree there, okay? Before you come running at me to remind me from John 9, I know that. And yet the Bible also teaches that if I get drunk... It will be like a viper that comes to bite me. All right? You take ecstasy, you smoke pot, you uh, inject heroin into your body. It will be like a viper that comes to bite you. And you get behind the wheel of a car and you may kill yourself. Or even worse, what? And that woman she said, or sometimes it happens, it just happens. Last night in Suffolk County, there was a man killed by a drunk driver who crossed the line, ended his life. It does happen that way. 
I scratch my head sometimes. People get venereal diseases. They say, why is this happening to me? They have to tell their wife they have herpes. Why? I wonder. But really, the other thing you can say at the water fountain is this. You know what? The problem of suffering, the problem of theodicy is a difficult question, but it ain't just a a question for Christians. In fact, Christians have it better than people who don't have faith. Remember, there was the second woman. She says, if, if you have faith, maybe you can figure things out. But if you don't have faith in God, now you're, she said, you don't know what to think. And so I often turn back to the person at the water cooler or at the company picnic, and I say to them, well, what's your answer to the problem of suffering? Because the atheist and the agnostic don't have an answer at all. Without God, they will eventually discover there's only despair when it comes to suffering. This was the message of Kafka, of Camus, of Jean-Paul Sartre, the despairing existentialists of the 19th and 20th centuries. Without God, there is only despair. There is no answer to the problem of evil. Or let me put it this way at the, at the water fountain. And you can, you can say this. Look, if, my friend, the human experience is entirely random, there is no God, then who is to say what is good and what is bad anyway? By what standard do you declare something is good or bad, evil or helpful? And who made you the arbiter of goodness? Because you see, there has to be an arbiter of goodness. You measure evil against that which is good. And what is good? Only God is good. And so you can say, to have this discussion with anyone, now we do need to talk about God. Who do you think God is And Psalm 106, verse 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is... What's the next word? He is good, and His love endures forever. And so God is the light and the standard by which all evil and bad is measured. Okay? And sometimes that's all the time you have with with a person. It's so interesting, this, this issue of whether or not you can even talk about theodicy apart from God. Tim Keller, in his book on suffering, um, uh, wrote after the, the, the murders at Newtown, just the, the children who were shot across, right across Long Island Sound there. And he quoted from a column by Samuel Friedman in the New York Times, and the title was, In a Crisis, Humanists Seem Absent. That's the New York Times. And he observed this, all this explicit religious conversation that was now going on in Connecticut. And there was this visible turn to God and faith. He noted that every single family of every child who was killed had a religious memorial service for them. And even President Obama, when he came he, to deliver an eulogy, he delivered it like a sermon saying, God is calling the children home. 
And here's what Friedman, he said he didn't want to comment on the religious services, but he said this, why is it that the nuns, who are the nuns? These are the people who check off, do you have a religious preference on your census? And they check off none, which in northeastern United States, N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E, the nuns, especially in a state like Connecticut, with a growing population of nuns, he said, why did they seem so absent after Newtown? And there was the young man in the video who said, God is just, I think God is just there, I guess. And then he chuckled a nervous chuckle. So, if you're going to talk about what's good or evil, you've got to bring God into the equation. So, these are the three points at the water cooler. The fall explains the world around us. The consequences of sin. Sometimes you sin against me and I suffer. Sometimes I sin against you and you suffer. Sometimes I sin against me and I suffer. Sometimes it's just this world is fallen and we're not going to assign blame and Jesus warns us against that. But now point number three this morning. What is our Christian response to pain and suffering, particularly from the passage that we read earlier? Because you see, my friends, God's Word helps us right at this point. And we learn that in the mystery of God's inscrutable providence, that the testimony of the Bible is that God does have a purpose for us in and through our suffering. This is what the Bible teaches, the passage we've studied, and many, many others. I think, first I just want to talk about the John 9 passage of the man born blind. And it's very interesting. When those creepy Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Who sinned, him or his parents? Do you remember what Jesus answered in John 9, verse 3? It's about two-thirds of the way down on the back of your sermon outline. You might want to circle this. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What did our Lord say? J.C. Ryle, uh, one of my favorite writers, comments on these words. He says, they throw a great light on the problem of evil. He says, God has allowed evil to exist in order that he may have a platform for showing his mercy and compassion. Did you hear that? I'll read it again. God has, God has allowed evil to exist in order that he may have a platform for showing his mercy and compassion. If man had never fallen... There would have been no opportunity to reveal divine mercy. And Ryle, I could could just hear him speaking in a whisper. He says, by permitting evil, mysterious as it seems, God's works of grace, mercy, and wisdom in saving sinners will be wonderfully displayed to all. Johnny Erickson, who deserves to give this talk more than I ever do. Paraplegic, quadriplegic, 
terrible diving accident in her young life. She receives a phone call from another young man, a Christian, who became quadriplegic as a result of a drunk driver. And he was asking her, and she took his phone call, how do I maintain my faith? I want to maintain my faith. How do I do it? And she wrote of that conversation. He said, so Johnny, what helps you as you cling to the sovereignty of God when your emotions are pulling you the other way? And here's what she said. Listen carefully. She said, I smiled as I gave him the answer that satisfied me back many years ago and satisfies me now. Simply this, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That may be the greatest theodicy solution I've ever heard. In short, she said, God permitted my accident Roger's accident, something he hates, drunkenness, disobedience, heartache. But he permitted what he hated to accomplish something that he loves. And what is that? Jesus in us, the hope of glory. And then she said, that is worth quadriplegia any day. Does God have a purpose behind it all? Jesus said in John 9, 3, the display of His glory, the great works of redemption will be revealed even through this man's blindness and even through your suffering. When Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, into the pit, when Israel received the cruel hand of Assyria and Babylon and carried them into exile, when Jesus was murdered and hung on a cruel cross, was God out of control? Was God nowhere to be seen? Was God wringing His hands, oh my? Or did God use Joseph to save the world in his day? Did God bring Israel back so that the nations would know there is a Redeemer? Did God lift Jesus from the dead so that you and I could experience life everlasting? God had a purpose. He has a purpose in your life. And then our passage here, a second passage, very helpful. Paul tells us of a time in his life when the suffering and the pressure... And the pain was so great, he said, it's going to kill me. I feel like I'm going to die. And some of you know what he's talking about. When you or someone you love is hurting so much and their pain is your pain and you say, I don't know, I don't know if I can get out of bed today. It It might just kill me. That's what Paul said. It was like a sentence of death. But, and now verse 9, what do we learn from the text? This was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He will comfort you. And this phrase, oh my friends, is extremely important, that we would rely not on ourselves. I said earlier in this service, some of you are the kind of people I'd like in the foxhole with me, right? The grenade comes in, you're the kind of guy that stands up, picks it up, and throws it back. 
because you are self-reliant, you are strong, you are clever, you are quick. And you want to fix your problems and everybody else's, by the way. Is that you? That was Paul. That's me. And the Bible says you're a dangerous person. You fix it. You're a dangerous person. You know? Because we don't want to teach people to rely on ourselves, on us, and we don't want to rely on ourselves. Upon whom will you rely? He says, we rely on him who raises the dead. He comforts you. He comes to comfort you. And then he gives you that comfort that you may comfort another. If you're suffering, Kathy Keller said before the, the powerful and the rich in, at the National Prayer Breakfast, she said this, if you are suffering, run toward God rather than away from Him. I'm quoting Kathy Keller. This is not your insensitive pastor talking here, okay? Kathy Keller, Tim's wife, says, You may have lived under the mistaken notion that it was God's job to keep your life calm and happy. And if that isn't what's happening, then you conclude He has betrayed you and you're finished with Him. Is that you? And Kathy, who's a great student of the letters of John Newton, I've read her thoughts on the letters of John Newton She said, quoting Newton, if you think you're getting no help by being close to God, be sure that you will get no help by being far away from Him. Okay? Run to God. Why? Because in your suffering, you remember that another suffered. And who is that? Our God is a God who enters into the suffering of this world. Bill Clinton won won election and re-election, and his word in the crowds as he charmed them all was, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But there is one who can truly say, I feel your pain, because I know your pain. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.18 describes God incarnate. God has suffered, for He Himself has suffered when tempted. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Our God is the God, unlike all the other gods, who enters into suffering. And in Isaiah 53, We read, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Peter tells us, Peter draws right out of Isaiah 53. He says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And because Christ Verse 21, suffered for you. He left you an example as you face suffering to follow in his steps. 
One more time as I conclude, Kathy Keller at the National Prayer Breakfast in 2013 said, speaking for myself and out of my own Christian tradition, I am deeply comforted to know that I have a God who is no stranger to suffering. He knows what it's like to bear the worst affliction. What is that? The judgment of God. He knows what it's like to bear the worst affliction and has done it on our behalf. And whatever troubles come to us, the worst trouble is over because Jesus has reconciled us to God. David Pallison had two clients in the same week, both of them had tragic news to report, but their response was so different. Which one is you? Let's pray. Our Father, today we thank you that you have called us to rely on God who raises the dead, that we can say, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him, my heart trusts, and I am helped. Some of us here today need You, O Lord, to light a kindle afresh, a new fire of faith. We need Your comfort, and we ask for it. And right now, we... We can even think of someone we know who needs your care, who needs you, and we pray for them. Right now, we pray for them. And as we sing this closing song, Our Father, we pray that they could join us in singing this confession of faith. Would you assist us to assist others humbly, We thank you for the great sufferer, our King, our humble King, our suffering King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.